Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sports fans, thanks to you, this podcast is now in the top 10 in iTunes. And let's not stop there. Let's get it to the top five. If you like what you hear, rate and review us. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know how much I love feedback and respond to almost every mention. So let's get the conversation going. You in? Why do college upperclassmen get penalized in the NBA draft? What are the key ingredients that make up a basketball coach? And what's the deal with Grayson Allen? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I am extremely excited to bring on the show Seth Davis, who is a senior writer for CBS, Sports Illustrated, and Campus Insiders, and also is a color guy on TV for the Big Ten Network. So, Seth, uh, thanks for coming on the show, and I uh, can't, can't tell you how much I appreciate it. My pleasure, Coach Nick. You're a fun follow on Twitter. I always uh, learn something, so I expect to learn something here to... The pressure's on you right now, Uh-oh. not me. All right. Well, it's, I guess it's a full-court press. Uh, you can zone in college, so <laughs> I'll have to try and keep my the ball moving. Um, I thought we could start out by talking a little bit about, um, you know, you're, you're covering college, and there are, I don't know, like 300 Division One schools, and I'm just kind of curious, how the heck are you supposed to keep all that straight in your head? Not easy, but it's not easy to keep most of my – uh, life trade in my head. I mean, on top of everything else, I have uh, a family with, you know, three sons and we just got a dog. So there's a lot to, <laughs> a lot to keep straight. It's a lot to stay on top of. I mean, a lot of it, Nick, um, you know, you try to stay on top of everything. Of course, you can't possibly be on top of every single thing, but, you know, it, it depends on, you know, what I'm doing at that time. You know, if I'm writing, like this week, I wrote a story on Justin Patton, the freshman center at mm-hmm. Creighton. So for a few days, I made myself an expert on Justin Patton. When I'm in the studio, I have, you know, tons of games that I can watch. I've got great research people. I've got, you know, the laptop, the iPad, the phone, the Twitter. So I'm able to, like I say, kind of monitor everything. But then when I really need something, I kind of know the places to go dive. So... I'm just kind of collecting bits and nuggets as I go, and you know, and, and listen, I'm getting I'm getting paid to watch basketball. I mean, it, it never it certainly never feels like certainly never feels like work. Well, you know, it's funny because we do the NBA over here, and around the NCAA tournament, I always try and catch up on what I've missed, and I spend like five days where my eyes start bleeding trying to watch as much college as I can. And I'm just kind of curious if you feel this way because. The biggest thing I take away from watching a ton of college, like in a very short period of time, is how bad the refereeing is. <laughs> well, you know, it's for you and Jeff Van Gundy, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of funny you say that because I'm the opposite with the NBA. Like I'm really into the NBA when it starts off, and then as you can imagine, once college starts, it's locked in, and the timing for me is is always great because just as the tournament ends. It's like the last week of the regular season in the NBA, and the playoffs are, are a lot of fun. So 
I kind of come at it the opposite way. And you know, I, I got to tell you, first of all, you know, the refereeing in the NBA should be better because there's fewer teams, fewer games, uh, and they have a professional national staff that is very centralized. So just the sheer numbers that you're dealing with in college, um, you know, you're just, like you just, you said it, 30 teams versus 350. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of what you're seeing. Also, you know, it's, you know, I think it's pretty subjective, better or worse. You know, it's a different kind of, of game, different kind of refereeing sometimes, so different things get emphasized. But yeah, I got to tell you, uh, Nick, you know, when I'm watching the NBA and watching the NBA playoffs, I hear a lot of complaining about NBA refereeing. <laughs> I mean, I mean, who, who complains more? Like, I remember, uh, you know, I don't know if you heard on, on Christmas Day, one of the games, you know, Jeff Van Gundy made that comment. He said, well, you know, if you ever watch a college game, you'd never complain about NBA referees again. I'm like, oh, really, Jeff? You're not going to complain about NBA referees again? Like, who complains more than you about NBA referees? So but it's, a, it's a really, really hard job. And the um, thing we know is that no matter what happens, the team that loses, their fans are not going to be happy with the refs. Fair enough. And, and I think I, I like your point, which is that because of the sheer volume, there just simply is that many more referees, that many more different styles. And so, you know, it is all over the place. I feel like I, I'm not always happy with the NBA refs either. Uh, the FIBA refs, I don't know if you ever get a chance to watch FIBA but or even the EuroLeague stuff, but I always feel like when I watch them, they seem to understand it the best. It's particularly when you have like the flopping stuff uh, and, and that kind of thing. They, and maybe it's a soccer thing, but they, they seem to really understand I control the game a lot better than than the rest in America you know possibly I mean again I think a lot of that Nick is just it, it's a European game is a different game I mean I think in a, in a lot of respects what they do over there um, is better than what we do over here in, in, in a lot of ways I mean just as an example um, I would love to see college basketball do the FIBA rule where you can where there's there's no such thing as offensive goaltending uh, it's an it's an exciting play. It, it it showcases athleticism. It doesn't come up that often. Ball's over the cylinder, and and you can go get it and flush it through. You know, I think it's a pretty exciting play. Um, you know, another thing that FIBA does, which I really, I mean, I'm gonna crusade about this one, is the way they they don't have live ball timeouts. You right. know, uh, you know, if Tom if Tom Brady goes back to pass and he's about to get sacked, does he get to call timeout and not get sacked? Um, so I never I never like that. I think I mean I don't like timeouts in general. Because I think um, you know, coaches at, at all levels are way too controlling, and it slows down the game, and nothing gets accomplished, and blah blah blah. But one thing I would really like to get rid of is live ball timeouts. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are you in favor of advancing the ball to half court after a timeout? A- absolutely not. I think it's a cheap gimmick. That's prime <laughs> real estate. If Tyus Edney can go down the court in a couple of seconds and make a layup, then uh, Danny Ainge can do it. Um, that is precious real estate. It's a cheap gimmick. I don't like it. I'm sure you do. Uh, well, you know, it, it kind of it just changes the whole way you look at it. As I was a high school coach, and it never was a consideration like, oh, I can call a timeout and advance. Like the timeouts meant a lot, something different than they do in the NBA. I, I kind of like it. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing it. By the way, whenever I see Tyus Edney, I always I can't I just say to him, I can't believe that you were able to get any of your shots off. At your height, because I I'm like four inches taller than him, and I'm short, <laughs> and I don't believe he was able to yeah. do that. I mean, you were. Did you see that yeah. live? Were you around when he did that at the end of the game? Uh, no, I certainly I, I didn't. I did not see that live, but I I know Tyus a little bit because he's on staff out at UCLA where I live. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's what, whatever he does the rest of his life, that's going to be the first sentence in his obituary. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, when I, I met Mark Price, all these little guys, when they come around those screens and can knock, knock down those shots, I just, I marvel at that. Um, at, at even Division One level and then higher because those guys, you know, those defenders are tall. Uh, and it, it just always it just blows me away whenever I hear and think about it uh, how they do that. Did you ever play when you were younger? Uh, yeah, but not at any kind of. I mean, I was a pickup guy. I got cut from my high school team, and I, I still have not forgiven the, the the high school coach for that. So, oh. if he's if he's listening if he's listening right now, f you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, but no, no, I didn't. Uh, I mean, I was I was a decent pickup player. I could I could show up in you know open gyms, which I always did. Um, and not and not embarrass myself. So, um, you know, if you can't if you can't if, if you can't do, then you're right. That's usually how it works. Well, you know, while we're on the subject, you know, you have all this knowledge on the bas- on the game and the way you feel, and your, and your writing is always so uh, detailed. Like, where did you? Where is the background of your basketball knowledge coming from? You know what? Well, well first of all, you know, I, I was just I grew up a huge sports fan. I grew up in the D.C. area. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the Redskins were everything. That was the heyday of the Joe Gibbs, you know, Joe Theismann, John Reagan's era. Um, and our, you know, we had season tickets at RFK Stadium. So that was really my first love. I was always a big sports fan. Um, but I, I think the most important thing that happened was I got rejected by the Ivy League schools that I applied to, which, which meant that I ended up at Duke, which in those days is where you went when you got rejected by the Ivies. Now it's, it's as hard to get into as any Ivy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my four years at Duke, Nick, well, first of all, I always knew that I wanted to be a sportscaster and writer, so I, I, I was already in that direction. Okay. And my four years at Duke, I graduated in 1992. My four years at Duke, the basketball team went to four Final Fours, they played in three championship games, and they won it twice. And I knew all those guys, still know all those guys. Um, so I got the college basketball bug um, and just kind of just kind of stayed with it. And, you know, it's it's interesting now because I'm cast in a role both in the studio and on these games at Big Ten Network that is usually assigned to, you know, players and coaches. And, you know, and while I don't claim to have the depth of intricate knowledge as a lot of these guys, and certainly the perspective of a player, I mean, we all bring our perspective. At the end of the day, it ain't freaking rocket science. And I, you know, <laughs> I've now got, I've got, I've got, a, I've got a, literally a quarter century um, I say it makes me sound old, which I am, but a quarter century of not only watching basketball, but in a lot of basketball, but, but talking and spending time with the most brilliant basketball minds who ever lived. So I can sit. I mean, I remember when I was at Sports Illustrated, I watched because Tom Izzo is the best for access. And I was just starting to get Tom. I was embedded when they won the national championship with um, a team Cleves in um, I think it was 2000, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I was working for Sports Illustrated and they knew that I had had this place. But like, you're just assigned to the Spartans. I followed them all the way through. The night before their championship game against Florida, I stayed up all night with him and his staff and watched them break down tape. And, um, you know, I've had countless examples of, you know, something happened. I'm talking to these coaches. Why did you do that? Why did you do this? What do you think about this? How come you didn't do this? Mm-hmm. And so over all that time, I think you accumulate enough knowledge that you can, you know, prepare for a game, watch the team's practice, watch video, crunch the numbers, talk to everybody, talk to the coaches, sit courtside, and, and teach the, the viewer something that, you know, he might not have, have known otherwise. It's just, it, it, it really just comes down to time, work, and shoe leather. 
And absolutely, it's a great point, especially because like people ask me all the time, like what books would be good to to read to improve as a coach, and and like when I start to reflect on it, I mean, I certainly devoured as many books as I could, but you know, I always think about where I've learned the most, and it does seem like it's been when I'm hanging around the coaches, observing, and just sort of being in the space and watching and picking it up. It just seems like that ends up being the best way to do it, um, you know, rather than trying you know study it out of, out of a book or maybe a video. Yeah, you know, could be could could be either one, you know, and and of course at the end of the day, I think I think we tend to overcomplicate things anyway in life. Um, yeah, I remember one of the best coaches I've ever been around was a guy named Gary Palladino. He was a high school coach at Notre Dame High School in West Haven, Connecticut. My first job out of Duke, uh, Nick was with the New Haven Register in Connecticut. So I covered high school sports for a couple of years. He was a great guy. They weren't. I mean, they were a good team. They would be ranked, but they weren't like a huge powerhouse program, but he was a beautiful guy and had great passion and great, um, it was just fun to watch him work. And one time he said to me, basketball, because he was talking about the role of luck, and I think the role of luck in basketball is, 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 is huge. Um, but he would say to me, he said to me one time, I think basketball is 70% talent, 20% coaching, and 10% luck. And you know what, Nick, in the, tw- in the, Two plus decades I've been doing this. I have yet to hear anybody put it any better than that. Think about that. 70% talent, 20% coaching, 10% luck. At the end of the day, if your players are better than the other guys' players, you're probably going to win no matter what you do. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but that's probably true because, you know, from the coaching standpoint, you never want, you know, you think, oh, there's got to be a chance. We, we, there's a way to do it. But I think what I discovered uh, over the years was that if you stick to what you're teaching and you believe in what that is, then that doesn't, doesn't almost doesn't matter what the outcome is, right? You can you can have to tip your hat to the other team if they can overcome what you want to offer to them, um, as long as you're executing that. And I feel like that actually makes it easier to coach because it almost takes away some of the um, you know uh, the if you get too too passionate about it or your emotions get too much involved in it, it's harder to kind of be clear headed and uh, and calm on that sideline. You know, kind of like a guy we wanted to talk about. You know, John Wooden on the bench, right? Well, you know, it's, again, I think when people talk about coaching and what makes a great coach, I think people almost always focus on the wrong thing. I feel like the first thing they're focusing on is X's and O's. And really, if I could make a list of the top 20 things, especially at the college level, Nick, the top mm-hmm. 20 things that make for a great coach, X's and O's might be 21st. Um, you know, it's, you're, you're, it's how are you building a culture? How are you creating your team? How are you developing players year to year? Are they getting stronger? Are they improving? Are they getting better? Um, you hit it right on the head. There's no correct way to do this. You coach what's best for you. You coach to your personality. You coach to your philosophies. And you coach to what you know. I mean, you look at Jim Beheim, they play 100% zone because he decided 10, 12 years ago, this is what we're going to do. This is all we're going to do, and we're going to do it well. And if it doesn't, if we're not doing it well, I'm not going to switch out of it. I'm going to do it better. And it goes right to his personality because he's a very analytical guy. The zone has a lot of tweaks. Then you have someone like Mike Krzyzewski, who, um, you know, is not, uh, you know, until recently never played zone and, and, you know, still plays very, very little zone. And they're both equally great. It's not, it's, it's, so it's not, as they say, it's not the X's and O's, it's the Jimmy's and Joe's. I mean, I'll give you another example. Um, Mike Bray at Notre Dame and the season that they're having, he loses guys every year 
and they're still good. Why? Because many years ago, he realized, look, we're not going to get the one and done. We're not going to get the big time guys. He was the first guy to take advantage of the whole transfer thing. He started at Delaware, and he decided one thing that I can do that these other teams that we're playing can't do is stay old every year. So you bring in transfers, you develop guys, they wait a couple years, and then you know by the time they get their opportunity, they're ready to play. So he's built that culture and, and recruited a certain way and developed relationships and stayed true to himself. And they're winning a ton of games, and it's got nothing to do with how he draws up plays. You know, that is a great point. And let me ask you this, because I asked Luke Walton this last year when I had him on the show for a quick interview. And I looked at the roster that the Warriors had. And especially like in the, in the year they won the championship. Almost every player on that team had played at least two years, mostly three and four years in college. And I said, do you think that's a coincidence that you are playing supreme team ball, very intelligent ball, these guys all get along and are great teammates to each other. Do you think it's a coincidence that they all spent time, extra time in college versus one and duns? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a great point. I would even take it a step further that the two best guys on that team are sons of great NBA players. So they were inculcated at a very early age with the understanding of what it takes to be a great player. It's not about showing up on game day, what it means to be a great teammate, the ups and downs, handling the off the court part of it, handling getting traded, handling, handling the business, handling, handling agents. Um, neither of them were, you know, hugely recruited out of high school. Neither of them were, I mean, Steph Curry became a, you know, a great player at Davidson, but remember, he was very lightly recruited coming out of high school, wanted to go to Virginia Tech, and, and they wouldn't even let him, they wouldn't even offer him a scholarship. So, um, and I think that, you know, the Warriors have made a conscious decision to create a culture. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus so much on the not one and done thing, because who's a better player, better teammate, better culture guy than LeBron James? You know, who is better, <laughs> you know, than, 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 than Kobe Bryant? Uh, look at Kevin Durant. He, Kevin Durant only played one year in college. Okay. Um, I, I, I interviewed Steve Kerr a um, uh, month and a half ago, maybe a month ago, um, and I asked him, you know, what, what does we know the upside that Kevin Durant brings? But what's the downside? What's the challenge? He said zero because he's an unbelievable teammate. He's a great human being. So um, I think I think when he, I, I think those decisions are made more on an individual basis versus sort of a, a preordained template. But it is a conscious decision that just because you have some talent doesn't necessarily mean that, that you know, joining our organization is, is good for our organization. Right. I mean, I just feel like um, upperclassmen all too often get penalized simply because they're getting drafted as a junior or a senior when if I were a GM, like, okay, those are the years at the end of his career that you're going to lose because he's older. But, uh, it, it, you know, for, for a while there, what was interesting was was that the guys getting drafted at the end of the first round were all the seniors who weren't getting picked and, you know, the younger guys were getting picked first. Well, they were going to teams that were already good and they could produce right away, making those good teams better than they already needed, you know, already were. So it was kind of this weird cycle, I thought, for the draft that was actually benefiting the good teams anyway. Well, and again, let's go back to my earlier point about luck. Um, there is a tremendous amount of luck, especially with the draft, and especially when you're drafting young players. I mean, did the Golden State Warriors know when they drafted Steph Curry he was going to be a future NBA, uh, NBA MVP? Uh, certainly the 
six or seven teams that drafted ahead of him had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, did they know that Clay Thompson was going to be this good? Um, you know, and now they're adding, you know, Kevin Durant. And did they know that Draymond? I mean, nobody. I, I, I you know, I, I thought Draymond Green would be pretty good, and, and was mystified that. I, I mean, he went in the second round. Um, again, I alluded to Justin Patton. Here's a kid who might be in the lottery next year. He's he plays at Creighton. Uh, he's from Omaha, and all these coaches saw him across the country. Nobody offered him. And Greg McDermott offered him, had him redshirt last year because he was so raw and unprepared to play in college. And they had a fifth-year senior guy who was to convince him to redshirt. And and now he's like a lottery pick. You think Greg McDermott knew that was happening? So you know, I, there's, there, there, there's a lot of luck involved here. But certainly if you have a good culture, good philosophy, um, then you're going to get luckier more than people who – more often than people who don't have those things. Yeah. Now, speaking of luck, you know, I'm kind of curious, is there anybody that comes to mind over the course of your career that simply by where they got drafted, they did not have a good career in the NBA where you thought for sure they would have had they just been able to get to like a different team, different situation? Can you think of anybody off the top of your head? You know, it's it's a little harder for me because I am um – not an NBA guy per se. I mean, I'm still pretty amazed that Jimmer Fredette can't find a way to play. I mean, I look at like mm-hmm. what Ron Baker's doing with the Knicks. Um, now he's a little bigger, a little, you know, better defender, but the fact that Jimmer can't even be in the NBA, uh, is pretty surprising to me. I mean, the, the, the one player to me that truly shocked me about how he did not pan out as a pro is Adam Morrison. Uh, now Adam had the issue of being a type one diabetic which I, I always felt like they underplayed at Gonzaga because they didn't want his uh, NBA, um, uh, you know, uh, draft stock to suffer. Um, but, you know, to me, I mean, here's a guy who was 6'10", 6'9", could put on the floor, could really shoot, good athlete, you know, huge, huge balls, you know. Um, but, you know, you do hit on, again, you know, this luck factor. And I've learned a lot about this, Nick, in by working with, you know, guys like, you know, Steve Smith, Reggie Miller, um, you know, former NBA players, Clark Kellogg, you know, there, there's a pool of players in the NBA who are pretty much going to be successful no matter where they are. And we all know who, who those people are. Um, you know, beyond that, it, be, it really does come down to fit and opportunity and does a coach really believe in you? And especially like, especially like those last four spots on the bench, like those guys aren't there because of, they can, can contribute in games. They're, they're there for, other reasons is it a is it a Paul Pierce situation where they help your locker room? Is it um, you know that he you know he played for you know the coach's buddy in college and they're hooking him up? Like what, why is the guys who are ten through twelve? So that's what three that's ninety players in the NBA. Mm-hmm. How many people around the world are good enough to be one of those ninety? Probably thousands, certainly hundreds. Why you know so to me it, it, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of luck involved when you're that level of player. Yeah, I mean, I often wanted to go back to our era of when we were growing up. You know, I wonder if Steve Alford looked at, like, Steve Kerr's, um, you know, career and been like, man, you know, if I had gone to not anywhere but Dallas or something, you know, I could have had that. Great career. example. Right? Great example. Why, why Why Steve Kerr? I mean, Steve Kerr couldn't couldn't get open if, if you or I were guarding him. But, you know, he, he, he just fell into a couple of really good situations. And at the end of the day, like, I mean, the kind of career that he had – you know, you have to say, well, you know, it has to be more, you know, he, he's probably better than we're all giving him credit for. You know, what he had a certain, um, 
way of thinking the game and playing the game and mm-hmm. uh, had, had a long career. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of a lot of it is definitely a crapshoot. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you watch Steve Alford play, I mean, he was he was better than Steve Kerr. I mean, you know, and in a similar size, yep. and you know, so uh, you know, it's it's fascinating when you look at that. You know what I mean? It's a great point. Why? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to ask. I'll ask you uh, that question someday. That's a great question for him. There's certain lot, lot of guys going again. Why? Why? Why can't Jimmer be a Steve Kerr somewhere? Right. Yeah. In fact, he can shoot. He can drill. I mean, he can shoot. I think yeah. if you can shoot like Jimmer for that somewhere in the NBA, someone's going to want you. But it's. I guess it's like Tebow, you know, but enough people have, have told Tim Tebow he's not good enough to play quarterback, then it must be true. Well, you know, I think that they wanted to paint Jimmer into a box, much like a Steve Kerr role. And I think that he gristled or bristled, whatever the word is, bristled against it. Um, and I think that he might have been right. Like, I would have liked to have seen him been unleashed because, you know, like Steph Curry is a good example of a guy who who played like Jimmer, right? Like that same kind of, you know, off the dribble, you know, deep shots. And right. when he got to the pros, you know, I think Steph also wasn't encouraged as much to do that. And it took him a while to do that. And I almost feel like, you know, I would have liked to at least seen Jimmer in some situation where they let him be free and let him do it. Uh, I, I, at least just to find out. Like, that's the thing. We've never found out. He's always been, in, you know, stuck in this role where he's just going to have to stand in the corner and wait for the kick out. And that's just not him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, and I think the list is we could probably go through the draft. You know, another thing, you know, Nick is they're just it. There, there are so few rookies that really make an impact in the NBA. I mean, how many players in this year's rookie class are having a genuine impact on the NBA? Three, three to five at the most, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't followed it that close. I don't know if there's a. I mean, I, I mean, you say Joel Embiid, but he's a, he's an unusual case. He's the obvious rookie of the year. But, but beyond that, who's really? I mean, Buddy Heald is, isn't even playing. Am I right? Uh, well, he last, uh, last I checked, he basically wasn't playing. Oh well, he was playing. Last I checked, he was he was you know doing better actually. But but you're right. I mean, the point being okay. made is that yeah, it's not huge impact. Like Brandon Ingram hasn't really you know made his impact as you know. And again, I'm not sure we had huge hopes for him. I think maybe Malcolm Brogdon is probably the one guy who has been most impressive to me. And guess what? How many years did he play in college? That's right. There you go. For sure, yeah. For sure. Well, th- this is this is why I mean, and he had he had a better body of work, um, uh, or or a, lo- or, or a longer body, you know, bigger body of work, I should say. And 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 that to me, like, I mean, I haven't studied this, but just instinctively, if I were running an NBA team, I would much rather build my team through trades and free agency than through the draft. Like, I would trade my draft picks for players only because it's it's a known quantity. Like, I, I would rather know what I'm getting than now, again, maybe, you know, you can take a chance and pass on someone who could pan out to be this great player. But I just think over time, the more you see of a player, the more you're going to know what you're going to get and, and the better decision you're going to make, yay or nay. That's a provocative statement because obviously people want to hoard those picks and use them uh, for the crapshoot that they are. I mean, some some teams, by the way, have you know, it, it feels like they might have figured it out to some degree. They consistently nail some of these picks, but uh, again, I always feel like I, I tend to would err on the guy who's a little bit older. 
who's a junior or a senior, you know, who's been learned a lot more. Uh, because this notion that you're going to be able to teach them, you know, the team part of the game during an NBA season seems kind of folly. Maybe you can get them better all the individual stuff and they learn all those moves. But to teach them, you know, spacing on defense and the weak side and all those things, like, you know, if they're not going to get that at the college level, it feels like they ain't going to do it over the summers with their trainers. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I hate to say this, Nick, because I, I think it's, you know, players who stay, there's so much pressure. Like, I think a lot of these bad decisions that we see of young players trying to come out, um, you know, the Davis kid last year from Michigan State is, is a great example. I think a lot of that, I mean, obviously it's family financial pressure, like, hey, you got a chance to make some money, go get it. But it, there's also the idea that you're trying to avoid a stigma if you stay more than one or two years, then somehow you fail. I mean, that's the that's the sick, um, you know, thinking that surrounds a lot of these kids. Having said that, we have to be honest and say, you know, if someone is a junior or senior and they're still in college, you know, there's a reason for that. I mean, the truly elite, truly, you know, the the the, the prodigal, you know, prodigies um, are are going to be, you know, freshmen and sophomores, and that's just. That's just the way it is. So it's it's like that's why I go back to the other original question about the Warriors. I think it has to be individual by individual. Um, you know, you have to dig in deep on on people's psychological makeup, their family background. But if somebody is truly truly talented, you know, as and he's only has one year for you to pass on that because no, I like three or four year guys. I'm not sure that's the way to go either. So it's not it's it's, it's a lot easier. You know, to, to sit in our, in our shoes and second guess everybody four or five years down the road than right. just to make those decisions in real time. Fair enough. Well, you know, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. And I thought, you know, sure. the, the, the one thing that bubbles up to me is uh, when I'm busy watching the NBA, but this Grayson Allen kicking thing has been, you know, sort of thrown out there on Twitter. And I've, I, if I've noticed it, then it clearly must be a thing. Um, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, what, is, the, what is this whole is, thing it about? Is, it is. It is. It is it, well, well, first of all, it is definitely a thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And at, at, at the end of the day, what, what it's about more than anything uh, is that he's, you know, he's, he plays for Duke, number one. Uh, the fact that he's white probably feeds into that sort of history, the Leighton or J.J. Redick, you know, we hate the Duke guy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, 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 that to me are the, main, is the main, are the main drivers, the Duke thing most of all, um, uh, because you see these other – examples of players doing things that aren't so good that don't you know, light up Twitter the way he does. I mean, they had this game against Louisville where he was going up against a Louisville player named Donovan Mitchell and Donovan Mitchell, to his credit, um, obviously had the mindset that he was trying to get under Grayson Allen's skin and try to get him to lose control of his emotions to make him less effective. And, you know, there's one play where, you know, he, Mitchell reached for the ball and literally slugged Grayson across the face, I think unintentionally, but and their arms got locked, and he pulled Grayson Allen to the ground, and as he got up, he literally slapped him open-handed on the forehead. Um, and it wasn't called at the time. And the headline uh, on one of the blogs was, Grayson Allen gets slapped. <laughs> Not Donovan Mitchell slaps another player. Grayson Allen got slapped. But having said all that, um, Grayson Allen is a great example um, of what I talk about when the importance of players understanding the difference between intensity and emotion. Intensity is good. Emotion is not always good. Um, and he, you know, he only knows how to play a certain way and that's, you know, balls out. 
and it's 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 you know been, become a problem, and it and it it's become a problem because of the scrutiny, and it becomes a distraction, and everybody's dealing with it, and there's a lot of dysfunction down there right now, and Mike Shashevsky's out, so um, you know my my advice to Grayson would be if this is how you need to get your emotions to be an effective player. Right now, what you need is to be a less effective player. You need to learn how to get your emotions under control and then build from there because it's not good for anybody. You know, I, I don't think he's a bad kid. I don't think he's a particularly dirty player. Um, you know, all the tripping incidents, if, if you've seen them, they're all kind of different. It was really only, only the one in, um, uh, in December against uh, Elon, the, the really bad one that was a true kick. You know, the others were kind of subtle. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a bit of a punk in a good way. People call J.J. Redick a punk. You know, would you want to play against J.J. Redick or would you rather have him on your team? I mean, the question answers itself. So uh, it's been a, it's, it's been a conversation driver, I can tell you that. Is he going to be a good pro? You know, it's close. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would say the one thing about Grayson that would give me pause is I don't know that he's a great shooter. And I think at his position as a combo guard, he's going to need to be, you know, a, a 40% plus three point shooter in the NBA. And, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know that he's there right now. So, um, but you know, he's got, he's got some bounce. He's kind of, you know, like a mini Rex Chapman. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's not a, it's not a slam dunk, but I could certainly see it happening. Wow. Well, you know, Rex Chapman's a name we haven't heard in a long time and certainly a guy who, who had some bounce, uh, and who could play in the NBA. So, uh, I make well, sure. Isn't it, isn't it the rule, by the way, that you have to compare white guys to white guys and black guys to black. I mean, in that, like, I always feel like, yeah, and I maybe maybe it's too sensitive, but I, I want to start a, a Twitter hashtag called cross the streams. Where we uh, only compare white guys to black guys and, and, and vice versa. Maybe maybe you can get that going. I, I don't I don't need to commit career, uh, career suicide. But, <laughs> well, um, we could talk about it. We could see. I mean, you know, you're right. Yeah. It, it's just there's a natural proclivity to that, and um, you know, yeah. I, I don't know what I don't know how else to get around it at this point. So I, I don't want to fight it. But uh, before we wrap up, I, I thought I'd just ask you a couple of questions because you wrote an awesome book about John Wooden that came out in 2014. And uh, I just had a couple quick questions because I'm, I'm a big Wooden fan. I mean, to be to be perfectly honest, I'm a much bigger um, Pete Newell disciple. Um, and as okay. we all remember, you know, Wooden couldn't beat Newell the last uh, eight times they played or something like that uh, going into 1960 before he retired. So, <laughs> um, you know, I'm just kind of curious. You wrote it in 2014, but did you ever have a chance to do any work directly with Coach Wooden before he passed away? Uh, yeah, I, I interviewed him uh, several times. Um as sort of part of my role with uh, Sports Illustrated. I, I never had any formal interviews. The last interview that I had with him was probably eight, nine months before he died. And I, I kind of knew that I wanted to try to write a book uh, about him, but I, I didn't have a contractor publisher, so it wasn't a formal. I, I just went out there to see him because I, you know, with Coach Wooden, you never knew when was going to be the last one, and that one turned out to be the last one. So I had three or four opportunities where, I mean, he was so accessible. You know, that's mm -hmm. all he did all day was receive visitors and talk to reporters. And he loved it. He'd go to breakfast with them at his favorite restaurant. He ate there every day, ordered the same thing every day, man of habit till the end. And then he'd go back to his den and he'd talk, he'd answer whatever question. And his mind was incredibly sharp and he'd read you poetry. And it was just this really enriching and enlightening and memorable uh, experience. So, so yeah, I, I was able to, you know, take a measure of the man, you know, up close, but of course, 
you know, because he was so accessible and so articulate and verbose, you know, he certainly left a, a, a treasure trove of, uh, you know, interviews and, and, and things that he said over the years that allowed me to kind of retrace everything. So it was, it was certainly special memories for, for me to, 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 spend that kind of time with him. Well, I, I wanted to share a funny story with you about that because I was coaching at a high school down the road from Froman's where he would eat lunch almost every day. And um, right. I, we would go in there maybe once a month for about, I don't know, two and a half or three straight years looking for him. And he, you know, coach, when you know, oh, you just miss him or he's not here today or whatever. And I, I swear to God, it was literally like years. And finally, one day we walk in and, and there he is. He's, he's sitting down and eating and we ended up approaching him and he gave me his card and I got a chance to, to speak to him just there. And uh, just, you know, I think that, that kind of is also a testament to like what, what he stood for because, you know, here's a guy, a young, uh, this is in 2000, but I was willing to, you know, I kept going in there every month hoping to find him. And it was just, it was just so exciting to be able to talk to me for a brief moment. The funny thing was, is he called me back later to say, I asked him if I can come over and, and, you know, just talk about the history of the game. And he said, well, how about now? And I was on my way to a game to coach a summer league game. And I was so stupid because I, what I don't think I understood then was if he says, how about now? Then you go to his house then. <laughs> right. And, and I, right. I, I thought he'd get a kick out of it, but I was never able to kind of hook up with him again later. Probably my biggest lament of my basketball uh, career was that I couldn't make that happen. But um, I'm glad that we can relive it a little bit with your book. Yeah, well, it was, you know, it was very interesting. And, uh, of course, a lot of work. I spent, you know, four years researching the book. But, you know, go back in time and through all the primary source material and, and retrace his life. And as I tell people, you know, if, you're gonna you're gonna write a book. You better enjoy your subject because you're gonna be spending a lot of time with them. Was there anything that like as you're digging through it? Because like so many of the stories are we we all know pretty well. But was there anything that was like a real surprise to you as you went through the research? Well, you know there were there were a couple of things. I mean, uh, you know, it's like the saying: as we get older, our stories get better. Um, I, I read a quote recently. Someone said, you know, you know. You know, damn, damn the eyewitness, he always ruins a good story. So, you know, Wooden told a couple of yarns. You know, one of them, uh, maybe the most stark to me was the story that he always told about how he came to the decision to retire. You know, he always told the story that, you know, they, he had just beaten Louisville um, in the Final Four, and Denny Crum was his protege, and it was this overtime game, really emotional. And as he walked off the court, he felt like he didn't want to go and, and talk to the press and he thought to himself, well, if I feel this way, it must be time to get out. So he decides on the spot to um, retire and goes in the press room and announces it. And my wife was shocked. My AD spent the night, you know, talking me out of him. He told the story a lot. It was a total lie. <laughs> he knew before the start of the season um, that he was going to retire. He told his AD, J.D. Morgan. J.D. Morgan had interviewed uh, Gene Bartow secretly. Bartow was the coach of Illinois, had his replacement ready. Huh. Um, the only thing that happened was the, the story started to get out. Actually, George Rappling, um at the time was at, uh, I guess, Washington State and writing a newspaper column, and Gene Bartow told him that this was going on, and Raveling uh, reported it first in his newspaper column, and it kind of started steamrolling at the final four, and I think Wooden was tired of, of lying about it. But that was just a complete made-up story. Um, and then the other one that I that I discovered on my own self, which was interesting is, you know, he always told a story about when he was at Indiana state, he had an African-American player who, um, and, and they were invited to play in the, um, what became the NAIA uh, national tournament. 
and you know th- there was a rule that there were no blacks allowed in the tournament. And you know, wouldn't always told the story that he told them that he he would refuse to go unless they would let him take his black player, and that because he did that, they changed the rule and he took it. And and this this young man became you know kind of a footnote in history as the first uh, black player. Well, I went back and that's actually completely not true. Wouldn't actually agreed um, to play in, in the tournament. Had informed this player that he was not going to be coming. And Borden, by the way, was incredibly impressive and progressive for a guy who came out of 1920, 1930, Indiana, the height of the Ku Klux Klan, was very, very, um, you know, admirable in terms of his personal views uh, about race and segregation. But he was, he did not take that stand. That, that the tournament overturned that rule because some schools in the Northeast uh, made us think about it, and they got the U.S. Olympic Committee involved, and, and that's how it got overturned. So his Wooden was, was, was very admirable in a lot of respects, but his behavior in that particular instance was not nearly as noble as he described. Aha. Well, you know, not everyone is always as saintly as uh, they may be appear to be, but certainly he earned uh, he right. earned all the credit he deserves. And so do you for, A, writing the book, Wood in a Coach's Life, and then also for coming on the show and giving me extra time today. I really appreciate it. This has been really great. And uh, where are we going to see you next? Are you going to be on TV anytime soon? I'm on CBS all weekend, and then I got um, uh, I got a couple of Big Ten Network games next week, and I do CBS Sports Network on Thursday nights and Saturday nights. So um, if, you, if, you, if you're not seeing me, then you're not watching, and God bless you. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> we will definitely see you. Uh, good luck to my alma mater, Wisconsin, when you're over there covering right. their game. Oh, uh, great. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel, we're a conversation. Are you in? Are you in, Seth? I, 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 I'm what? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course. <laughs>